So let us now give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy word as it is found in Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, Ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in all the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather into the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other out of love, knowing that I am set apart for the defense of the gospel." What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. 
Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As we come to the letter of Paul to the Philippians, obviously we see there in verse 1 of chapter 1 that Paul is the author of this epistle. There's very little debate, there's very little doubt even among modern scholars over the question of its authorship. External evidence among early church fathers like Polycarp and others testify that it is the Apostle Paul who wrote this epistle. The internal evidence, that evidence within the text of Scripture primarily, shows that Paul wrote it there in verse 1. We see Paul and Timothy, as servants of Christ, write to all the saints. And so, we see Paul's handwriting all over this epistle. Paul had ministered to the church and was familiar with the believers. There in Acts chapter 16 and chapter 20, we see Paul's familiarity with the Philippian church. There are a number of personal references to the Apostle Paul in this epistle. We see particularly here in verses 12 through 26 that Paul makes reference to himself as being a prisoner of Christ. We see, we'll see next week in chapter 2 that he is associated with a man named Epaphroditus in chapter 2, verse 25, and he refers to his own testimony in chapter 3. So the evidence is very clear that it is the Apostle Paul who wrote this epistle. It is most likely written in 61 AD during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. There is some question, and it's not a lot of question or debate, over where Paul was imprisoned. Some think it was in Ephesus. That is not a very strong argument. It's most likely Paul is writing from a prison cell in Rome. Now, he had some freedom in that prison cell. He wasn't in a dark place where he had no freedom. He was given freedom. In fact, here in chapter 1, verse 13... It refers to the palace guard. And so he is in the Roman palace under some form of imprisonment. And he refers to his impending death. So most likely it is Paul's imprisonment in Rome where he writes this letter. Paul and Silas both established the church in Philippi on Paul's second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16. It, along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, are classified as what we call 
the prison epistles. Because in those epistles, Paul is addressing the church when he is being held by the Roman guard. The occasion for this letter, and I've made reference to Epaphroditus, Paul commends him for his ministry and for his support. Paul thanks the church for their gift of giving to the work of the gospel. He asks for their continued prayers. And even though there's not a lot of warning in the epistle to the Philippians, he does urge the church to maintain its unity and its peace. And so those are some reasons why Paul wrote this particular letter. But you will see throughout this letter that one of the main themes is joy in the Lord. And Paul refers back to that number of times. And so as we begin to look at chapter 1, we see, first of all, an introduction in the first point, verses 1 through 11. And then the second point, we see Paul's rejoicing in his circumstances in verses 1 uh, verses 12 through 26. And then thirdly, we see an exhortation in verses 27 through 30 to live a life consistent with the gospel. And so here in the introduction to this epistle, in verses 1 through 11, we see the salutation verses 1 and 2, which give an indication it is a Pauline epistle because Paul writes it with his own hands. He gives the same greeting that he would have given in Ephesians, Colossians, and all of the other epistles that he has written. So it's written by Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Um, And they write to not only the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, He writes to the bishops and deacons. Again, Paul addresses the church as the saints of God, not because of any merit, not because of any super arrogation of departed saints, but because they have been declared saints by the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he writes to the entirety of the church, to the saints in Christ Jesus. And then he addresses the bishops and deacons. There has been controversy, particularly in some of the early centuries of the church, whether there was a three office, bishops, elders, and deacons. There is no historical evidence for that. There were those men by about the fourth or fifth century that advocated the role of a bishop over an entirety of churches. But the word bishop there, as Paul uses it in um, the letter to Timothy, indicates men who rule within the church. And so they are the ones who have governance. I think oftentimes this word bishop, even though it has um, some connotations that we would not agree with, I think holds important usage here because it shows that they are those who carry the staff who rule and who protect the sheep of God's flock. And so that imagery of of a shepherd walking with the staff, protecting and shepherding the people, and then the work of the diaconate, which was a strong ministry in the first century, 
and had fallen in disrepute in um, the Middle Ages. And uh, he addresses both saints and the leaders within the Philippian church. And then he says unto them, Grace be unto you, and peace, God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, here Paul gives that apostolic greeting, not just simply a greeting that we would offer in the context of our culture, but a greeting that conveyed to them, May God's grace be with you. May his peace be be yours from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul begins there in the prologue, verses 3 through 11, with this thanksgiving and prayer. This is typical of his epistle to the Ephesians, where Paul gives thanks for the church and prays for them as he remembers them. He states there in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. These people were on the heart of Paul. This shows that he was truly a servant of Christ, that he was one who labored in the cause of the gospel. And so he says, every time I remember you, I thank my God for you. But particularly when he is praying, he remembers the Philippian church And he says, I give thanks always in my prayers for you all, making request with joy. And here's the first indication of this theme of joy in Philippians. When Paul is remembering them, particularly in his prayers, there's there's a sense of joy. There's a sense of of, um, connection with these people. But he has a connection with them, not just because they're people that he thinks, oh, maybe I should pray for them. But he has a connection with them because they have a fellowship in the gospel. From the first day when he planted that church on his second missionary journey, when he planted that church and until this present time when he addresses them again, he reminds them of their fellowship in the gospel. I think there's a tendency for us to kind of water down that word fellowship in the context of our 21st century culture. That word fellowship denotes a a connection, a kinship with people. And the fellowship of which he talks about is a fellowship in the gospel. It is a fellowship that draws them together. Paul prays for the unity of the church. He desires the unity of those Philippians so that they might share in the ministry of the gospel. When a church is not united, when a church is divided and torn apart, there's no concept of the gospel. There's no concept of fellowship in the gospel. And it is that connection that Paul makes that indicates that their involvement in spreading the gospel and planting churches is what draws them together. And so Paul says that he is confident that the very work that God began to do in them 
from that time he planted the church will be performed or will be perfected until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul not only expresses his joy at the grace of God in the lives of the people, but he also shows that despite the circumstances he finds himself in, he is confident, he is strongly sure that God will preserve his people by the grace of God until the day when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And so this letter gives us a lot of comfort and consolation. This letter gives us a lot of hope that as we join together in the progress of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel throughout the work, we see God working in the hearts of his people until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins to continue to give thanks for them. And then in verse 7, he says, It is right for me to thank this of you. He says, I have you in my heart. Paul has great affection for the saints in Philippi. And here again in verse 7, we see that call to unity. Even as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. And so here Paul shows the, the fellowship that they have because of their unity within the gospel. One thing that we often fail to see is that the persecution that believers face, whether it's in the Sudan, whether it's in China, whether it's in places throughout the Middle East, it is the fact that believers share together in persecution that draws them together. We oftentimes think that even in the church we have something in common. But our commonality is the gospel of Christ. And we can't miss that point. Because when they suffer together, there's something that brings them together and promotes the unity and the peace of the church. And so he witnesses and testifies to their his longing after them. Verse 9, he says, I pray that your love, and here is the specific prayer of the Apostle Paul. As he offers thanksgiving for them, now he comes to his prayer, verses 9 through 11, that your love may abound yet, what? More and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Paul is not saying, I pray that you might love each other. He says, I pray that your love for one another may abound. If there's no evidence of love in the life of one who professes to be a Christian, calls into question whether they're a Christian. Because as 1 John tells us that those who are born of God, what? Do not practice sin, and they love the people of God. And so here Paul says, I pray that your love would be strengthened. How is it strengthened? in the knowledge of God, and in all judgments. And so, 
Believers are to grow in their love for one another. They are to grow in their knowledge, in their discernment of the truth. And this is what roots them together. This is what strengthens them in their resolve to serve Christ. And then in verse 10, he says he wants them to be able to discern what is the best. Love is what cultivates discernment. Love is what cultivates that knowledge that we have of God. Believers are to use that discernment and that knowledge that the Lord God has given them so that they might be pleasing one to another. And then he finishes out his prayer there in verse 11 and prays that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which I by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Here's a wonderful thing I would encourage you to do this week as you pray and praying for each other. Pray that the Lord would fill each one of us with the fruits of righteousness. Pray that the Lord would strengthen our unity and our resolve for one another. Because this is what Paul prays for. This is the heart of his apostolic prayer. And it should be the heart of the prayer of all believers. And so we see Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for the church. We see there in verses 12 through 26 that Paul rejoices in his circumstances. This goes contrary to our culture. This goes contrary sometimes to even people within the church. What do we do in our circumstances? Oh, things look terrible. Oh, you wouldn't believe what's going on in my life. That's the conversations that we often have. We talk about all of the the struggles and the problems that we're having, and yet Paul rejoices in those things. Paul doesn't complain about the fact that he's in a Roman prison cell. Paul doesn't complain about the fact that he doesn't have the freedom like he would like to preach the gospel, but he rejoices, and again, here's that theme of joy, he rejoices in his circumstances. We see there in verse 12, But I would have you understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. And so Paul says that his rejoicing in circumstances that are of God's doing, he says that this advances the gospel, that the gospel is advanced through his sufferings, and the gospel is advanced through his preaching. The gospel is always advanced through preaching. Some may reject it. Some may turn away from it. Some may be antagonistic to the message. But whether people respond to that or whether they don't, the gospel is advanced. And he says in verse 14, that many of the brethren in the Lord are waxing in their confidence by his bonds. In other words, those believers who see me suffering for the cause of Christ, those brothers and sisters who are confident 
that this is advancing the gospel, become more bold. That when they see the hardships that I endure, it causes them to be more bold in their proclamation of the gospel. And so Paul's imprisonment motivates some, verse 15, to preach the gospel out of envy, and it motivates others to preach the gospel out of goodwill. don't have a whole lot of detail here. This is uh, kind of a, a, a picture to us of some of those um, people that Paul will deal with who um, turn away from the gospel, those who are his adversaries. But Paul makes reference here to the fact that some preach Christ out of contention, some preach Christ out of goodwill, but he rejoices whether Christ is preached out of either one of those motives. Paul says we rejoice that the gospel is advanced throughout the earth. And so the gospel advances through the sufferings of Paul. The gospel advances through his preaching. And then verses 19 through 26, Paul's number one aim, Paul's number one goal is to live is Christ, to die is gain. Can you say that? That to live is Christ, to die is gain? This should be the aim of every Christian. Paul desires to go and be with the Lord. He says, that is great. But he says, it is necessary that I remain so that I might further the work of the kingdom. Verse 21 is a wonderful verse to write upon the tablet of your hearts. To live is Christ. To die is gain. No other reason is life worth living than to make Christ our aim. If a man or woman does not have any reason or purpose for existing, then it makes sense that Christ is our aim, that He is what makes life worth living. And so the believers to live for Christ, even though death is gain, we find that those who live for the glory of Christ, even in the midst of their infirmities, even in the midst of persecution, labor fruitfully for the cause of Christ. Here Paul makes reference to death. Death is not destruction. Death is not asleep. Death is not annihilation. Death is but a temporary separation of the body and soul. We should not only think of death, but we should long for death. We should not think of death in some desperate way to escape from our problems, but we should see death as a desire to be with Christ. And so, Paul finishes out this section of Scripture by exhorting them to live their lives for the glory of God. And then he concludes in verses 27 through 30 in the third point by giving a word of exhortation to the church. Only let your conversation or your manner of life be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. 
Paul says that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he refers here the reference to those adversaries of the gospel of which he will speak of later, who um, have received the token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. It is indeed granted unto the church that not only do they suffer for the cause of Christ, but they live their lives consistent with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the desire of the believer is to live to the glory of God, and they are kept and kept secure so that they can serve and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul calls them to live a life of unity, live a life of steadfastness, to stand firm in their hope and in the gospel. So Paul's aim and conclusion is to live as Christ, to die as gain. Paul's hope is summed up in death where he will be with Christ. He makes a connection between a holy life and a happy death. When one lives for the glory of Christ, it makes death sweeter. It makes death more joyful when we understand that we are called on behalf of Christ to be united together. And so as we think of this epistle, there's, there's a whole lot of in this first chapter. But I want to encourage us to think of our life as consistent with the fact that we share together in that fellowship of the gospel. There's no other reason for the church to exist. The church does not exist for fellowship meals. The church does not exist for someone to have their needs met. The church doesn't exist for all of these other things that we oftentimes think about. The church exists for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel throughout all the earth. And that is what we are called to do, is to share in that ministry, that fellowship of the gospel, as we proclaim Christ throughout all the nations of the earth. And so let us sing to the glory of God, Psalm 34a, At all times I will bless the Lord.